Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharatvarta Weekly. I'm Roshan Karipa. I have with me Nirav Kanodra and Abhishek Paul to run you through the news and events of the week that was. And it has been a super eventful week. I know we say that every week, but this week we had uh, no paucity of topics at all. There's just plenty. There were protests and riots in France, Israel, and Kenya. There was uh, the unfortunate incident of a step wall collapse uh, in an indoor temple. The government has decided to charge for UPI transactions in certain cases. Uh, then there is the Northern Sea Road development by Russia and India, and we have a few updates on the India-China relationship. And in more optimistic news, we have the birth of the first cheetah cubs in 70 years in India. Well, all of this and more on this weekly. If this is your first time here, we publish episodes on politics, policy, and culture every week. Follow or subscribe to us on your favorite platform to stay updated on all of the amazing content we bring to you. Hi Abhishek, hi Nirav. Uh, excited about the IPL season? Nirav, uh, who are you rooting for? So as usual, I'm always um, though I'm wearing yellow, like I'm always <laughs> rooting for Mumbai Indians. So, they've got a very bad team and they'll finish last last time. So, hopefully just improving last year's performance is good enough. Well, uh, I'm not going to say what, you know, Abhishek said uh, before recording, right? E Salah, I mean, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, as an RCB fan, it's uh, it's been a heartbreak uh, for many years for us. But yeah, I mean, hopefully we get to see some uh, good content. Mr. Nags is back on uh, TV, uh, right? So, following all of the excitement. Well, let's get started with the first piece of news for the week. Over the past week, civil unrest has grown across the world with French, Israeli and Kenyan citizens breaking out into protests and riots against the government. In France, the proposed pension reforms have sparked concerns and triggered protests that turned violent. The reforms would increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. These protests uh, began somewhere in January. People in Israel are protesting the judicial overhaul proposed by the government, which could tighten political control over judicial appointments and limit the Supreme Court's powers. Well, something that we're all too familiar with. Uh, in Kenya, rampant corruption has led to increased prices for basic necessities and uncontrolled inflation. This has also been used as an opportunity by the opposition leader, Raila Odinga, to rally people against the government. Well, Abhishek, you know, a lot of uh, protests, riots across the world. Uh, are these, you know, somehow connected or, you know, these are just like unfortunate disparate in incidents that have uh, happened somewhat coincidentally? Yeah, I think uh, it's more of the latter. I don't think we can sort of correlate these things other than what I would say is that I've been seeing a trend for maybe the last decade or so where the importance of protests has, has kind of grown significantly in the public discourse. And I feel like we see a lot more of, uh, let's say, these ground level protests uh, all across the world in the last decade than, let's say, the, the time period before that. So coming specifically to these few ones you mentioned, the France one is basically situation where macron feels you know the pressure of his of the fiscal situation essentially right and a society which is aging which is going to struggle it's already struggling to sort of cope with uh, the pension liabilities and a society which is aging in which you know people live more and you have a, a funnel which is kind of narrowing down right because of fewer and fewer children and then therefore 
fewer people to be in in the workforce in the coming years uh, he he sees that as a sort of long term challenge right and therefore he's trying to do the fiscally responsible thing which is to sort of shore up the ability of money coming into the pension system right and therefore he sort of uh, said that you know the retirement age will increase from 62 to 64 now again this uh, impacting two two cohorts right it is impacting obviously the people who are close to retirement age right you can feel their disappointment in in the sense that they might be looking to get off work and now to get their full pension they'll need to work two years longer right the other cohort that is kind of unhappy is the youth right who feel that unless people move out of the workforce new jobs will will be more difficult to find for people coming into the workforce right so this sort of impacts people at two ends of the spectrum we see that in every reform anywhere in the world right because ultimately you know there are no free lunches in economics right it's like everything has uh, you know constraints and trade offs and the trade off here is on one hand trying to improve the fiscal situation but on the other hand it is the retiral prospects of one cohort and the new job prospects of another right and so i think macron won the election just last year and so he has still a long way to go in this term but his sort of popularity is dipping fast and people are saying that you know this the protests are going to eventually be sort of politically beneficial for marine le pen right she doesn't really have the opportunity to sort of capitalize immediately in elections in national elections but there are other kinds of elections like elections for the european parliament etc which are coming up before so we'll have to sort of see what's the impact there coming to israel i think the issue there is that number one israel doesn't have a written constitution and so historically the supreme court of israel has played a very significant role in public life and the supreme court kind of considers itself as a big check and balance against governments right the executive and now so the sort of so called reform by netanyahu and his government is that uh, they want to have a simple majority rule uh, in parliament which basically means that a simple majority in parliament uh, that is they have 120 seats in their parliament if you get 61 votes then you can overturn any supreme court decision essentially my understanding is that is the reform and that has uh, sort of brought out people onto the streets not only netanyahu's uh, political opponents but even people within his coalition opposed it he ended up sacking one of his ministers who said that they should sort of stall doing this uh, reform right away and things like that so yeah it's become kind of very politically charged there there are uh, various government servants uh, and others who are refusing to work now i i read somewhere there were pilots refusing to fly and things like that so yeah 
I think Israel is also in for a lot of uh, political turmoil with this. On the Kenya one, yeah, not really well versed on the situation there, but essentially it is about, as you said, corruption and inflation and all those kinds of things where the public has sort of come out to protest and yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting time in the world right right now. I mean, post-COVID with rising interest rates and so on, I think there's also a lot of discontent within the people. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're finding various ways of expression uh, in various parts of the world, I suppose, right? Well, moving on, on Thursday, the floor of a temple in Indore collapsed, taking 30 people down with it. 14 were confirmed dead and some severely injured. The reason is said to be heavy footfall on the occasion of Sri Ram Namami. Madhya Pradesh uh, Chief Minister Shivrat Singh Chauhan said, I've given instructions to investigate the incident. In this unfortunate incident, the government stands with all those families with full sensitivity whom we could not save. Nirav, this is pretty unfortunate. I think the last time uh, uh, we spoke of something similar was the, the stampede that happened in South Korea, right? One key issue which comes here is that very little money is spent on like maintenance etc. of these temples and uh, this kind of old step well, I think there was some additional construction activity which kind of covered it with a grill and some tiles, right? So the construction permits or seeing safety and all of those things, a lot of times religious institutions feel that they are kind of immune to all of this, right? And uh, what you could see like as a peak load could be very different. So that is one thing. And uh, second thing is, that a lot of our public places are poorly maintained. Like a lot of capex is done at times by the charitable institutions, etc. But opex is a problem. And we have a lot of old buildings, not just religious institutions, a lot of public places which can be prone to crowding and lessons need to be learned here. So that uh, this is a very sad, unfortunate thing should have been avoided completely. But lessons need to be learned and like some sort of like a safety audit uh, needs to be done. Some sort of like what you would call as disaster planning and some framework uh, needs to be there. What has happened, we can't change that. But like how do we avoid these things in the future? It's a sad thing. Hopefully the lessons from this can uh, help us avoid any future disasters. Yeah. I think, yeah, we should probably do an episode on temple management and so on. You could suggest uh, who could be relevant speakers on this. Obviously, I think the highest amount of power should rest in the local communities that manage the temple uh, because they have the most amount of skin in the game and they're invested in the faith. But there should also be some kind of uh, exchange of knowledge and information, right? I mean, some best practices, uh, as they would call in the corporate domain, right, where you know, how things are maintained, how people can be managed, so on and so forth, uh, are just passed on from some of the better uh, institutions across the country. News on the economy. Uh, recently, the National Payments uh, Corporation of India, NPCI, issued a circular about interchange fees and wallet in interoperability. Under the new regulatory guidelines, the prepaid payment instruments or PPI wallets have been permitted to be part of the interoperable UPI ecosystem. This move, however, comes with a 1.1% surcharge for merchants uh, for transactions about rupees 2000 and no fee if the transaction amount is under rupees 2000. Uh, well, there was a lot of outrage on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is often a blunt instrument. Uh, people don't read into a lot of the nuance, right? But uh, 
really if you look at the percentage of transactions that something like this would be applicable for it would be very very minimal first of all this is only applicable for wallet based payments right if i were to transfer uh, via upi into directly into an account it's not valid uh, and even within those valid payments uh, it's uh, only for something about 2000 right which is uh, i would hazard a guess and say that would be less than 5% of the or less than 1% of the transactions uh, in this wallet uh, domain right but typically i think the wallet usage uh, uh, as far as i understand is is for things like uber swiggy you know your 400 rupee payment 500 rupee payment and so on and so forth right i mean you don't often pay uh, beyond that uh, using these wallets uh, so it's definitely a corner case not uh, like you know i mean worth the outrage on you know hey we are charging for upi and all of that stuff upi is a public utility at this point of time and it's a tremendous utility right i mean we had uh, 7000 crore transactions uh, which was up around two times almost two times uh, year on year right uh, so it's obviously i think everyone admits that it's a overwhelming good and that the government should definitely invest in this like they would invest in you know public infrastructure like uh, roads or highways and whatnot but the government obviously spends money to maintain this infrastructure right i mean there isn't such a thing as a free meal so you know just the maintenance and the infrastructure is about 1000 plus crores 1300 crores apparently right uh, and definitely the government should think of how they can recoup that cost uh, and you know in the larger scheme of things right when you have an amount of 125 lakh crores 1300 crores is a very 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 small amount uh, so the government can recoup that cost uh, even if it rises through some minor fees on corner cases as such uh, like they're trying to do with this but the signaling is good right the signaling is that you know hey we will charge for this at some point of time i don't expect that you know 95% of the transactions will be charged at any point of time and even if they do decide to charge i think it will be well below the standard uh, mdr or merchant discount rate as such right the amazing thing about upi is it has led to such a vast formalization of the economy right you've had uh, you know your nariyal pani wala your uh, you know person who sells flowers kirana wala etc etc all of these people adopt some formal instrument of payment uh, right and that is an overwhelming good right i mean because that could just be the tip of the spear in terms of hey whether it is taxation credit etc etc all of these things so yeah i mean uh, that's what i think about it uh, need of anything to add on this front basically somebody needs to pay for the infrastructure and uh, uh, in this one it's basically this is only affecting a small portion of wallets lastly credit card companies charge you some uh, merchants like uh, 2 to 3% right and uh, this is like a much smaller percentage which is there on it and for the small businessman who's accepting payments via upi this creates like data as well as like money going straight to the bank account uh, where the banks can lend them money this provide probably access to credit so all in all it's quite a good thing and maybe co- compared to the alternatives so compared to the alternatives that you hold cash and your problem of change and that cash is a non interest bearing instrument or you have other uh, kind of alternatives here this is like a much better one so i think uh, it's fair uh, as upi adoption rises i think there will be some payments i think something will be charged but i think the charges is worth the convenience that it creates yeah 
I think you know if I were one of those payment companies like you know Paytm or Acepay or etc. I mean I would definitely be wary of this, but uh, it it is such a market I suppose right. And and I think the government even if you look at some of these BNPL regulations that have happened right. I mean the government is trying to reduce the amount of you know players in between the end consumer and the person who's actually lending uh, right or the banking entity basically right and. hopefully at some point of time they will have these quasi banking entities newer forms and so on and so forth uh, so they can sort of define their own playing field as such right but that's what it is for now well in some geopolitical news uh, russia and india are looking at expanding the use of the northern sea shipping route that passes through the arctic russia wants the northern sea route which runs along russia's northern coastline and is the shortest shipping route between east asia and europe to become a major shipping lane and has invested heavily in infrastructure there it is not currently used in winter due to thick ice but spurred on by the warming of the arctic moscow plans to begin year round shipping by the end of this year uh nirav this is an interesting development yeah absolutely as in see india is like much smaller compared to like what russia can trade say with china so one is they have a large land border from vladivostok like from moscow to vladivostok they have like the trans siberian railway where a lot of containers can be shipped via rail and then from vladivostok port uh, they could have been shipped elsewhere but now with the opening see earth the maps that we see are on a rectangular piece of paper are a misrepresentation because the earth is a sphere so from moscow st petersburg the movement around arctic is actually much smaller right because you you're traversing like a very small uh, latitude right at like the northern latitude the distance is much smaller so one is you could have one route so if you look at the map so you go from moscow or like the western russian front where like a lot of the industry a lot of the oil fields are your only one exit is you go via the black sea so from black sea when you exit you have like one bottleneck uh, which is uh, near turkey right which is where istanbul is so that, that is one bottleneck Then you have another bottleneck. When you go in from Black Sea, you go to the Mediterranean Sea. From Mediterranean Sea, you have the bottleneck of the Suez Canal. Then from Suez Canal, you have another bottleneck, which is at the Gulf of Aden. And then you come to India, right? So, if these are avoided at the top Arctic, as you said, like during the summer it was navigable. In the winter, now they have like very advanced icebreaker ships, as well as because of those icebreaker ships, they have like a small channel which is open even in the winter. So in the winter. also you can have this northern shipping route which goes all the way to the east to vladivostok like japan and from like around japan korea all the way down towards indonesia the bottleneck over there is strait of malacca where which is between malaysia and singapore right and around the strait of malacca and then you come over or you could bypass all of it sail around indonesia and then come to india so what this does is eastern sea route has minimal intervention from western military powers if if i were to like very plainly put it there it is still probably longer it gives an optionality it gives an optionality that you have one route which has a lot of bottlenecks a lot of western insurance companies are not willing to insure uh, russia's oil trade so see india is importing a lot of russian oil so this is another alternative which comes up and we will see i think i am not too hopeful that this completely changes india is already importing about uh, 30% of its oil now from russia and that number will be constant instead of having like one channel where it's coming from we have another channel as well 
So some any sort of disruption or whatever, we have an alternative, which might be slightly longer, maybe takes longer in time, but like probably cheaper to insure or like cannot be held up at like a narrow choke point like the Suez Canal, right? And uh, so that is there. Otherwise, I think this is more Russia kind of opening up its avenues. And India is a willing buyer of Russian oil. Whichever way you transport it, I think India should be fine. Probably it's going to be more expensive as well because shipping through the Arctic may not be cheap. So, yeah, but this is interesting. And uh, for Russia, while it has like access to the Pacific Ocean, it has access to the Atlantic Ocean. Now it will have access to the Arctic Ocean, right? Opens up a whole nother sea front. So, US has like access to like the two oceans on each side. But this opening up the of the Arctic front can possibly help Russian trade. Given that they are Russia is moving away from Europe as a main customer to China and India. So it's good for India a bit, a lot better for China, definitely. Let's see. Uh, all right. In more geopolitical news, uh, Bhutan, in a sudden shift, has claimed that China is also a party in the Doklam dispute. This is a major, major headache for India as the Doklam Valley is a strategically important location. This region is vital to India's security as it overlooks the Siliguri Corridor, which connects the seven sister states in the northeast to the rest of the country. And also, in a series of events uh, in the China-Taiwan saga, Honduras has cut all ties with Taiwan and has recognized the One China policy. Several small EU countries such as Czech Republic, uh, Lithuania, etc. have increased their support for Taiwan. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen visited the US on an official visit and this has angered the Chinese. So, Abhishek, Nirav, a lot happening on this front. Why don't you guys educate us? So, on the Bhutan front, what happened is there is an interview of the Bhutan PM Lote sharing uh, with a Belgian newspaper which came out. And the sort of big revelation in that was that he said that China has not made any intrusions or built any villages on Bhutanese territory. Now, how this is being interpreted is that most sort of observers and scholars of the region who look at the maps, etc. say that China has built about 10 villages in what is sort of commonly accepted as Bhutan's territory. So now either the maps were all wrong, right? Or Bhutan is sort of quietly ceding over territory to China. Now, uh, the ba- some other background to this is that there were talks between China and Bhutan bilaterally a few months back. And so one of the speculations is that Bhutan might be willing to cede some land on the places on the borders where China has already built these villages in return for something. Now it's not necessarily clear, right? What is that something? You also talked about the whole Doklam thing. So on the Doklam front, I actually feel uh, the prime minister's statement there was not particularly new or different. He sort of maintained their official position that there are three parties at the tri-junction of Doklam, right? And all three parties are um, equally important and any settlement or any negotiation on Doklam will have to involve all three parties, which are uh, Bhutan, India and China. 
so i would say the more concerning part was uh, on this uh, villages related um, statement where he said that china is actually not intruded so i was listening to shekhar gupta's video on the print channel discussing all this so he gave one more interesting sort of background in information which is that uh, so the chinese via their uh, global times newspaper right has been trying to stir up this topic recently and um, so the chinese say that um, it is the east india company and the british which kind of took over land or territory from the bhutanese right and then which has subsequently become parts of india so the chinese are trying to sort of stir up passions among the bhutanese by saying that look these indians occupy your territory via you know the historical route of the british and the east india company and so on right like areas like the duars in uh, the northeast of india and so on so that was one interesting uh, point and then they also say that it is india which kind of uh, uh, interferes in bhutanese politics and they give the background since the 1950s right where india has always been allocating funds for bhutan's development right through from nehru to narendra modi right i think the latest sort of we have some 4000 plus crores supposedly to be invested for bhutan's development right so what india says is of course we we are helping a neighbor of ours right in terms of its infrastructure development or things like that while china is sort of branding it as uh, you know interference in another country which essentially they do throughout the world funnily enough so yeah i think uh, this is like one more thing that obviously our own foreign ministry and diplomats will have to be keeping close eye on in terms of what other developments might be happening here over to nirav for the taiwan thing yeah sure sure this is also like very interesting part which is happening is a taiwanese leader tsai ingwen uh, she is visiting the us and uh, this is angering china because he, china believes like there is like one china policy where taiwan is a part of china whereas taiwan which calls itself republic of china as is, as in like the other one is people's republic of china it maintains its independence it's a democratic country and uh, one of the reasons why they are going there is uh, under the chips act in the us taiwanese semiconductor manufacturers tsmc in particular is setting up an arizona plant and they want a no double taxation treaty for taiwanese corporates now taiwan status is not really a country as per the un resolution right what is a country is it has a proper demarcated border it has a stable population and it has the ability of maintaining relationship with other countries and that is not there earlier taiwan which was republic of china till the 70s was the un member and then it became uh, the people's republic of china came in and then republic of china is not there even in the olympics it's called chinese taipei right so this is like a uh, ambiguity and the us policy towards china is a policy of strategic ambiguity where it kind of says that, oh it's a separate country but it's not really there etc the chinese do not like it and they they have created a lot of tensions around that at the same time like in taiwan it's not all unilateral that everybody wants to be 
away from China or like more aligned with the US. So the current ruling party is called the DPP. So Democratic Progressive Party and the leader sighing one is in the US. The reason, another reason, the double taxation thing is if US really wants to move like chips production to US from like Taiwan or East Asia, Taiwanese companies are at a big disadvantage because they're taxed twice. They're taxed in the US and then they're taxed in Taiwan. And uh, this kind of makes all the investments unviable. So US has like a lot of double taxation treaties with multiple countries. But now is Taiwan a country or no? But Taiwan has some relationship with others. So China is very upset about this. And there are a lot of these smaller countries. In 1945, after World War II, when Japanese occupation went off, there's a party KMT, Kuomintang, which was the ruling party in China. And uh, after, in 1949, when the Communist Party took over, the leaders of Kuomintang, one of them was Chiang Kai-shek, they all ran away to Taiwan. They ran away to Taipei. They said, we are a country, we are ruling China, but in exile right now, etc. Till like the 70s. And that was the kind of feeling there. So, a lot of these countries, like Honduras, they had diplomatic relationship with Taiwan and not with China. Or like some of them had with both. So China is trying to pressurize some countries to drop their recognition of Taiwan or like pull out the embassy. But this, to be fair, Honduras is also a very small country. Taiwan is a small country and uh, you will struggle to find it on the map. And it does not have any big geopolitical relevance. Taiwan has a huge relevance right now due to the whole semiconductor industry and their lead in the design of like very advanced ship, design and manufacturing of advanced ships and also is the Taiwanese companies which are assembling iPhones, etc. So this is uh, something which is there. Now at the same time, the opposition party in Taiwan, which is the KMT, which was the earlier ruling party before DPP, their leader, Ma ying is actually visiting China. And now this party's thing is about having greater cooperation with China, somewhat sort of like a Hong Kong-China relationship, where you have your own local leaders, you have your own currency, you have a lot of strategic autonomy, but kind of with like the uh, blessings of Beijing. So people are also divided along these lines. Uh, You also see that in the center, the ruling party is the DPP. But in a lot of local elections recently, uh, KMT came back in power. Uh, One of the major thing is the mayor of Taiwan is actually a descendant of Chiang Kai-shek is from the KMT now. So there is a lot of friction. There's a lot of moving parts and very interesting. For India, India kind of does not recognize, does not have like a full embassy like in Taiwan. But again, like the US has some sort, it doesn't call it strategic ambiguity, but does follow that kind of a policy. Uh, we have uh, Taiwanese assembly guys, Foxconn, uh, Vistron, Pegatron being the big three who are assembling iPhones in India. Foxconn with Vedanta is trying to set up a semiconductor plant as well in uh, Gujarat, right? So I think there are a lot of uh, moving parts here. It is very interesting, right? This is a very, very interesting time. Uh, 2024, you have elections in Taiwan as well. Now you do see, does the more pro-US party win or does the more pro-China party win, right? So that is also very critical. And there's a lot of worry around the Taiwan Strait where... Uh, will China take in some military action and try to take it over uh, for TSMC and a lot of other semiconductor companies? Uh, do they think that 
they have a lot of key uh, manpower as well as key technology and is does diversification make sense that uh, they're trying to set up something in germany they're trying to set up something in arizona and that is tsmc which is the most advanced semiconductor company but also uh, you're seeing like japan and netherlands which sell equipment which is advanced lithography machines to uh, tsmc uh, to make those uh, semiconductors right so they are the equipment to make uh, uh, 3 nanometer and 5 nanometer chips they are now blocking uh, any sales to china so i think this is all regarding this key technology uh, these are all the key players so for tsmc does it need to be associated with taiwan itself or can it be globalized and uh, set up plants all over the world india wanted tsmc to set up but unfortunately that's not happening and we won't be building the most advanced chips but maybe the older generation chips which are still used and used in many things but like it gets us up the curve right on from like electronics assembly to like some manufacturing of electronics and some design etc so this is very very interesting times uh, i would say that there's no clear winner so 2024 is very interesting you got uh, taiwan elections earlier in the year you got india elections middle of the year you got the us elections end of the year right uh, so a lot of moving parts we're going in for a very interesting time and uh, we really don't know what happens right i don't want to take any sides don't want to predict any winners uh, but i think the sensible thing to do is to try and diversify and de-risk even at the risk of a higher cost and that is what uh, taiwanese companies are doing corporates that they have a lot invested in china right uh, how do they kind of de-risk from china in case of a flashpoint between the two they are caught between uh, two Uh, superpowers right this is like one small country with one technological edge caught between two huge superpowers and it has the critical ingredient you know it's like it's very very interesting times and uh, i this is my hope as always is in the cold war between us and china how does india try and get a foothold in and make some uh, benefit out like get some benefit out of this whole tensions here absolutely yeah Uh, well, we'll end on some very optimistic, some very nice news. Uh, more than seventy years after cheetahs were declared officially extinct in India, the country is now home to four newborn cheetahs. India's Environment Minister announced on Wednesday, the cubs were born to Siaya and Freddie, two of the eight rehabilitated cheetahs brought from Namibia to India in September of 2022. India's uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi ji also welcomed the announcement, calling it wonderful news. uh this is pretty awesome actually hey by the way have you guys uh, checked out this colossal biosciences um there's a silicon valley company that's uh, trying to bring back extinct animals like the woolly mammoth or tasmanian tiger dodo and all of that so who knows the future might look uh, i mean really if, if if <laughs> if the movies are anything to go by i'm sure nothing will go wrong right <laughs> <laughs> yeah what can go wrong right I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll be navigating some saber-toothed uh, tigers in uh, fifth block Korvamangla or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's a wrap from us uh, here on the weekly. Uh, we bring you the week uh, posthumously on hindsight, right? Because we choose and curate carefully what are the two or three or five things that uh, really make sense, that are impactful, that are significant in your life, right? So we don't want to be the latest or the uh, breaking news in in any sort of way. 
right so hope you like this uh, weekly uh, and if you do don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite platforms uh, it really helps more people discover our content and speaking of next week we have this fantastic episode uh, where velina chakrova speaks with abhijit chavda of course i mean it's a wide ranging conversation on india's role in uh, the global geopolitical stage uh, fantastic conversation do check it out and uh, excited for uh, the ipl matches today we have uh, punjab and kolkata playing and then lucknow and delhi uh, all of them seem to be sort of evenly matched uh, nirav abhishek uh, who who have you got your money on so i think this year is like very interesting i think any game or it's always been the case with ipl but this year a few injuries unfortunate injuries to rishabh pant jaspreet bumrah so uh, any game at least in the first half of the ipl is really unpredictable right it, it it's it's like a 50 50 toss which kind of makes it exciting to watch that said yeah and then tomorrow we have like uh, mumbai versus rcb so uh, that's that's the game i'm going to watch today let's see and uh, yeah so isal <laughs> <laughs> cup i'm not no 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 we'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, do stay safe take care and from nirav abhishek and myself uh, Bye bye see you next week Jai Hind